Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, Whew, just got off the phone, literally just got off, well, Skype, not phone, with our guest this week and said, I'm going straight into the intro, because what happens when you cut your brain in half? Let's put it that way. Our, our guest this week is Michael Gazziniga, and he knows more about the brain than most people on the planet. He spent, I don't know, 50, 60 years working on split brain research. So when you hear, oh, I'm left-brained or oh, I'm right-brained, he's the guy to ask because he cuts them in half in people that are living and observes what happens. And the results are astounding. I'm just on such a high after talking to him. He's one of the leading researchers in cognitive neuroscience. He's a professor of psychology of UCSB, where he heads the new SAGE Center for the Study of the Mind. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Institute of Medicine, and the National Academy of Sciences. And his book that we're talking about this week is called Tales from Both Sides of the Brain, A Life in Neuroscience. You have to understand that this guy trained at Caltech, uh, California Institute of Technology, back in the 60s. He worked under Roger Sperry, who went on to win the Nobel Prize. He had people like Richard Feynman, you might have heard of, just drop into his office and say, literally ask him about the experiments he was running. 
normally this is where I would cut off the intro and just let you go into it. But for the first time ever on Smart People Podcast, I forgot to hit the record button for a few minutes in. And so let me give you a little bit more background. So so when I first started talking to Mike, I asked him, what is this split brain research? So as you know, or probably know, right, we have the left brain and the right brain, and they're connected in the middle between a couple of different things. The major one being the corpus callosum. And back in the day, they thought that a way to treat epilepsy was if you cut them, then the part of the brain that was in charge of these seizures would no longer be connected and you could limit the number and severity of these seizures. And it actually did work. They don't really do it anymore, as I understand. There's better ways of going around it. But given that, Mike and his team were able to study the effects and I do ask him, you know, why learn about this? But, duh, you know, asking a scientist that, I mean, really the way science is done is by taking things that work normally and seeing what happens when you alter them. So if somebody has a stroke and there's a lesion on some part of their brain, as he talks about in the interview, it gives us a chance. If you know what happens when things go wrong, then you better understand how they operate when things are going right. The book outlines, it's really written in a story type manner. He talks about his time at Caltech, which was amazing. He talks about the individual studies that he did with various patients, which we get into a little bit in the interview. The other thing we talked about, these were the only two things you you missed out on. Back then, there wasn't this red tape that was up. Scientists really said, here's what I want to work on, and they went and worked on it. So what Mike got to do is he did a lot of his training and his research on monkeys. So he could just get a monkey, clip the corpus callosum, and split the two brains, and then do different tests. Well, what was interesting, he was also in charge, him and his team were also in charge of training the monkeys. Tell me how fun that sounds. Well, nowadays, there's so many different regulations that this research is really getting backed up due to all of that. And if we could just loosen them a little bit, we would make bigger leaps much more quickly. Sorry, it was only about five minutes you missed out on. We jump right into it. So you're going to kind of start right from the idea of the split brain going to get into it here. First of all, don't forget about our Amazon banner. Even though we don't talk about it much on the show anymore, it still helps us cover these costs. And also, we really appreciate those of you who leave a comment and a review on iTunes. I know when you're listening to this, you're on the go, so it's not the easiest to do so. But to go back, I read everyone, literally. Actually, recently, we got a review from Podcast Virgin, and it was five stars. I loved it. So thanks for the kind words. Anyone else, if, if you enjoy, please head on over there. Let us know. Smartpeoplepodcast.com is where you can find us. Feel free to email us. Here it is, your interview with Mike Gaziniga. Well, let's jump into things about the brain because obviously you've seen a lot of them. I've seen none of them. It's connected. First of all, how is it connected? I mean, what is it made up? We've all seen the pictures. You have the two hemispheres, but how is it connected? Well, it's connected through the two half brains, right? We're talking about here. It's connected through a structure called the corpus callosum. And it's literally a, a bundle of neurons that connect what are called homotopic points for the, for the most part 
So a, a particular point, say, in the temporal lobe of one hemisphere connects to the sort of identical place in the other hemisphere. And so it's just like a big looping neuron that goes across uh, between the hemispheres. And, it, and you can think of it as an updating wire to the, to the two half brains. And that runs the length of uh, the brain where these neurons uh, represent information from one side and, and basically communicate it to the homotopic point on the other. Now, there's cross wires in there, and there's all little subtleties and everything, but that's the main story. And these are, these are myelinated neurons, and in the human brain, there's about 200 million neurons uh, uh, doing this job. And then there's another smaller uh, little cable, little nerve cable, uh, beneath the corpus callosum called the anterior commissure. And that also connects the parts of the, of the uh, brain called the temporal lobes, the, the temporal regions of the brain. So together, those two form the... Uh, split brain surgery. Interestingly, in uh, humans, you only have to cut the corpus callosum to get these split brain effects where one side doesn't know anything about the other side. In the monkey, you have to cut this other little one as well. So it tells you how there's different wiring patterns between the two, hmm. uh, the two species. And you you can go down, a, a, you know, long. There's all these little incidental observations in this storyline that uh, that make it even more interesting. Why is it that the brain would be constructed that way? I mean, if we talk about for evolutionary purposes, and how is it that you can cut it in half and it function, as you mentioned? To, to at first nobody even knew it it mattered so you could literally cut it in half I, I imagine if you cut you know your arm one of the forearm bones or something off you, you know it doesn't work the same way or it doesn't even work at all how is that possible and why would it be set up that way well it's a it's a complicated picture uh let me try to capture it here so the uh the first take on this, the effect of the surgery was, uh, well, look at here. Uh, a surgical disconnection of these two hemispheres took one mind. Let's, let's use you as an example. Let's say you're undergoing the surgery, and you think you have one uh, unitary mind, and that's who you are, and you have a narrative about it and all that stuff, right? And now a surgeon comes in and disconnects your hemispheres, and when you wake up from the surgery 12 hours later you would uh, have two minds. <laughs> what? You know, what, what's going on here? I mean, after the surgery, if I put an apple in your right hand, which goes to your left speaking hemisphere, you'd say, well, that's an apple. You, if you could hold it out of view and you'd say, yeah, yeah, that's an apple. I put that same apple in your left hand and before surgery, you would say, well, yeah, that's an apple too. Yeah, same thing. After surgery, you would say, I don't know what this is. What, what, I don't know, you would say. You would maintain you don't know it. But yet you would be, I would notice as the patient was holding the apple that they were holding it and feeling it and orienting it correctly and finding the stem and twisting the stem. And the, the, that left hand, right hemisphere knew it was an apple, but it doesn't have a speech center. So it couldn't talk to you about it. And then this simple little bedtime bedside test you you would just say oh my goodness there's a, here are two completely different mental systems now there's one that's talking the left hemisphere and telling you all about the world and this right one 
is processing all kinds of information, able to do all kinds of things, but just can't talk to you about it. The only way it can show you its knowledge is by letting it point to, you know, options uh, that might be related to the question you're asking. So it could respond non-verbally, but it couldn't respond verbally. Would it know that it was food? Uh, it would know it was food. In the sense that if you put an apple and you said, do something to it, it would put it up to to the mouth. Even though it couldn't say, this is an apple. Say what it is. Right? Wow. So, so what is the purpose behind that, do you think? For assuming, you know, uh, we've evolved for millions of years to, I don't know, procreate, thrive, etc. Why not just have one blob that everything's part of and can, or I guess that's what it is this is when you separate it so when you separate it you see that there's lots of uh, complementary uh, processes going on in the brain that things are doubly rep- some things are doubly represented some things are singly represented and then as you get past this first sort of easy approximation left brain right brain kind of thinking, and you start studying these patients carefully in a number of contexts over 50 years, you realize, well, actually, there's lots of local distributed systems that are working, and most of them are working outside of conscious awareness. Therefore, you really shouldn't talk about left brain, right brain, but that we are organized in terms of distributed modules throughout the brain. And then the trick becomes, well, how do they how do they all interact and pool themselves in a way that makes you and me think we all have a unitary conscious experience? That's that's the trick, hmm. trying to figure that out. And I would say 50 years on now, that is the big question for neuroscience in general. And in particular, uh, the split brain is just a an example of, of trying to think about how that all it offers us, there's a million experiments now where we try to say, okay, how are they cooperating there? How is information being exchanged? Why is there a sense of uh, a unitary purpose? And, and what do we learn about how normal brains are organized to carry out the same thing? All, all that comes out of that. and I go into it uh, in, in the book and, and try to explain it to the general reader. Yeah, and, and you do a great job at that for the for the non neuroscientist. One of the things that really struck me is we kind of touched on this at the beginning of the interview, but prior to you starting this and really uh, digging in, uh, there's a gentleman, I think William Van Wagoner. Is that right? Van Wagenen. Van, yeah. Van Wagenen. So he did the same thing. He separated the brain and he observed no changes, which yeah. was accepted throughout all of the scientific community. Yeah. What made you you know, think, oh, this is worth my time to make sure he's right or to prove him wrong. Because I feel like oftentimes, especially now that so much information is out there and available, people look it up on Google. They say, oh, it's already been done and don't dig any further. And if that was the case, say in this scenario, we'd be completely wrong. That's just a wonderful point. Uh, There's this great, uh, Berkeley physicist, uh, scientist, uh, Louis Alvarez, who, who used to say, you know, what is it about scientific thinking? You know, is, is scientists are these, are these just these uh, <laughs> nerdy, super curious people and, uh, and all that kind of, you know, kind of reasoning and caricature of the scientific life. And he says, no, 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 no. Scientists are people who listen to a story and they say to themselves, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, oh, nah, that can't be it. 
and they get off the their duff and go test another model. So in that sort of spirit, uh, when the uh, back roll of time back here in 1960-61, the the evidence that uh, Sperry and his student Myers had accumulated on the cat and monkey was so clear, so so strong that even though there was all this storyline about humans and uh, that it didn't amount to much, there was just, that can't be true. Something went wrong, right? That. So let's go. Let's go try this out. And then, the you know the luck part and everything was that, that in terms of, in fact, a, a, the appropriate patient to test this out, you know, kind of appears in the scientific context where these questions were were being examined. So, so that you know, obviously you're you're, you're invigorated. You want to go test it because if you can show, absolutely show that. Either way, it was a winning experience. Yes, these, the human is different. There's absolutely no effect, just like those guys said 20 years ago. Or, no, they must have done something wrong. Uh, and, you know, with, uh, with hindsight, you can go back and reread those papers and say, well, they didn't quite do this test right, and they, you know, they did. You, you can find an explanation. Or they didn't actually cut the entire corpus callosum, but there was too many things they left intact, and, and so forth. So... So this is why, you know, this is part of this Caltech thing. Well, okay, so you got to just go do it. <laughs> just get do it. Let's see what's going on here. And and there the story unfolded from there. Yeah, and one of the great things, you could almost consider it not lucky, but just this is how it was. The reason you were able to do this is because it was a accepted medical procedure. You know, normally it'd be really hard to cut into somebody's brain just to see what happens. But it had been proven that this helped with epilepsy. So your job was to simply study the effects, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had, I had nothing to do with the medical rationale and uh, argument. Uh, and and I think made a, a spare, both Sperry and myself made a point of not being part of that at all because uh, – that's just a, those are totally different criteria and, and 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 rationales to to do this or not. So that was a total medical decision under the charge of Bogan and his his mentor, a guy named Peter Vogel. So yeah, we're we're there to say okay, uh, next next guys come in and say what, what what's the effect of this, right, and so forth. So yeah, let's take a minute for our sponsor this week, which is a great free tool. That could change your life. Yes, that's free. And our sponsor this week is Future Advisor. I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I hate planning for anything. So I do kind of dread retirement because it's decades away and I'm scared I'm not going to be in a good position for it, especially with all the hidden fees and unexpected taxes. If you don't know what you're doing, you're not maximizing your investments. Okay, so how do you get a good idea of what your financial strategy is and how you're doing? Hmm, you guessed it. Future Advisor. Future Advisor's Nobel Prize winning strategy and intuitive financial software ensures you get the most out of your investments so you're able to retire sooner. Okay, first, you go to futureadvisor.com slash smart people and you sign up for a free account. You're actually given three months free premium service and you'll get a free portfolio analysis. So you put in your different investments or where your money is, how it's doing, and they'll actually grade you on it. Literally A through F. 
both John and I gave it a try, and it was funny to compare both of ours. I actually did okay in diversification and fee efficiency, but my performance, not where I wanted it to be. So if you have any type of retirement account or investment account, do what I did. Go to futureadvisor.com slash smart people and get a free portfolio analysis in under two minutes. Again, that's futureadvisor.com slash smart people. Back to the show. How much do you think we still have to learn, but we can't, given that you can't really experiment on humans? I mean, I always, every day, because I love this stuff, I'll read something new that's happened to mice or that we've done to mice or to chimpanzees. And since we share 99% of our DNA, but it takes years, decades, and sometimes never to, uh, to, to translate that to humans. How, is there an answer to that? Is there a way to bridge that gap and, and figure it out, given that we can't just cut into brains to see what happens? Well, sure. There, there, uh, in the last 20, 30 years, there's been an explosion of new technologies that allow us to tap into uh, normal brains, uh, patient, patients with neurologic disorders, psychiatric disorders, lift electrical signals off them or with brain imaging, look at underlying metabolic processes. And all of this is done non-invasively. It's just science trying to uh, figure out what's going on by all these these cool new methods. So that's fine. And, and everybody from college sophomores to uh, uh, very ill people participate in that. And it's completely uh, harmless. Uh, but still, there's a rich, rich... Uh, body of information from studying patients who have had natural accidents of stroke, tumors, uh, uh, injury of all kinds, and particular parts of the brain become lesion. And uh, their disorder is, is, can be manifest. You just see it, and then you're trying to figure out what that means and what, what part of the brain was involved. And so it, it, it's a rich field for figuring out more and more. Uh, in some sense, I lament the, uh, you know, we live in in our jet age and everybody is naturally biased to using the new technologies, the fancy brain imaging technologies of all kinds. But you can learn a hell of a lot putting on your white coat and walking in a neurologic, into a neurologic ward and studying people who, are, who, have, who have experienced some kind of natural lesion. Hmm, that's a good point. So... Since you have done this for so long, I want to get from the expert, what does it mean to, first of all, what does our left brain do? What does our right brain do? And is there any truth behind the, oh, I'm more left-brained or I'm more right-brained? Well, you know, everything has a grain of truth to it. Um, so the, the, the long and short of it is that uh, when, you under, when you have this uh, procedure done, your left brain winds up being the brain that uh, talks, understands language easily, and talks and does complex thinking. And so anybody who is uh, uh, using their logical processes and speaking about them, people say, well, they're left brain or they're analytical, right? And that's true, but that even in, in, in the normal brain, uh, while that may all those processes are majorly centered in the left hemisphere. In the normal situation, the right hemisphere is contributing in subtle ways. Uh, and even after split brain surgery, while it's not contributing directly, there's subtle ways it could still influence that. So you get the left brain story. Then the right brain 
the isolated right hemisphere by and large doesn't talk. Uh, and it has these other capacities of synthesizing information, of making certain kinds of visual motor responses more quickly, uh, seeing uh, illusory uh, perceptual events better than the left. And it has a little grab bag full of tricks, too. And so people uh, said, oh, well, that's the creative part. Well, that's when it, the the thing goes off the track and it it's not quite right. The right hemisphere has these specialized skills, but that that doesn't mean it's the creative part. The left side is just the articulation of the creative part. That, that's where the metaphor got strained and, and sort of breaks down. Because that's exactly what I was going to ask next is, okay, what's all this talk about? I'm creative because I use this side of my brain. So you're basically saying not really science behind that. No. Okay. There are there are people who, uh, having said that, <clears throat> of course, there are people who psychological profile they tend they tend to be more creative they're more generative they're more metaphoric they're more this they're more that that's true uh, i mean there's other people who you know just show them a table of numbers and they're happy that's true too so uh what w there are processes that uh, align with those that uh, are distributed uh throughout the brain and, and re requires cooperation between the hemispheres in many cases so it's just not a it's just not a sustaining idea. It's like everything else. The first idea, simple, clean, and then as it, you learn more about it, well, it's a little more complex. Sure. Yep, absolutely. So given both sides of these brains, the experiments you were doing, one you talk about a lot in the book, the study with WJ and the tax. And I, I found this one so interesting because you said how he would pick up a tack and twirl it. And even though he didn't know what it was, yeah. He was laughing to himself. And right. that, honestly, that was creepy to me. Like, not interesting, but creepy, because I'm worried, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, it was just an example of, uh, so he had had his surgery, and uh, and he was exploring a series of objects I had. Uh, he was blindfolded, so he couldn't see them, you see. You have to, you want to, if you're trying to touch, uh, examine uh, the touch uh, sensations, you can't let him look at it because then through vision he can say, oh, well, that's a whatever it is, you know. Uh, but if he can't see and he's blindfolded and you put into his hand, uh, this in this case it was a little block that had a tack nailed into it. And so he picked up the tack and twirled it. And the other blocks and the other options didn't have this tack in it. So he became very uh, fascinated with this because he could certainly have the sensations of twirling this and they were going to his right hemisphere and his right hemisphere for whatever reasons found that funny and he was amusing himself with his dexterity there and then when I would ask him well you know what's so funny he said I don't know and that's his left hemisphere talking and his left hemisphere doesn't know the right hemisphere produced the laughter right hemisphere uh, once it's produced of course the Left hemisphere is in the same body, feels the chuckling, feels the feels the emotional state. That that is not limited in splits, and so it, it in a sense, uh, if you pushed him on it, would have to cook up a meaning as to why he was laughing. And that that was a finding throughout the whole fifty years of, of research that uh, we came across. Really incredible stuff. And you actually mentioned the thing about emotion. 
What have you learned through this, all of your work with the brain, but also split brain about emotion and how we process it? Do you know much behind the science of emotion as it relates to the brain? Well, the, uh, this kept coming up, of course, because we could set up and produce uh, an emotional response in one hemisphere and then examine how, did, how does the other hemisphere deal with it. And the long and short of it was the other hemisphere always got the tone, the valence of the emotion, but it never got the content because the content was part of the split brain. Sorry, if it was a picture that we showed them that made the, the hemisphere laugh, that part of the, of the events just didn't transfer over. The other side didn't know anything about the picture or what it was. But if it produced tension or laughter or whatever it is, you know, the body is in the same body. The emotional response, the hormonal response, the subcortical cueing and all this kind of stuff, those are common to both hemispheres. So it gets the tone. It just doesn't know why. Wow. Wow. And that, that gave rise to... Uh, uh, my former student, Joseph Ledoux, really taking that apart uh, over the last 40, 50 years in, in uh, neuroscientific terms and building very intricate models about how all that was organized prior to conscious experience. And, uh, you know, he really developed the field of emotional neuroscience that in many ways stemmed from this this work we did. So Now I'm really fascinated by that. I might have to talk to your, your former student. What... Does that help us understand at all how our thoughts impact our emotions? It it it, it does. It's a whole story, and I, and I know I'll give him a plug. He's got a new book that's coming out called Anxious. Oh wow! I, that's I mean that's amazing. I'm talking to him. That's like already I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, he's great. He he he's a great scientist, a great writer, and a great guy. So, and he has a rock man on the side. Oh, I love it. Is there any advice? you know, apart, not apart from the science, but using what you know, and especially what we were saying about how I can imagine, right, the right side of our or left side, take the side, um, sees something, knows why it's reacting. And then it kind of goes through the body. The other part of the brain just feels it. So knows something wrong, something's wrong, but doesn't know why. Is there any way that we can use that use that knowledge and make ourselves happier? Is there a way to respond better? And, I, you know, I'm just looking for anything that somebody could take away from this and go, I'm going to try this today. Well, you know, so the last bit of our, uh, I mean, not the last bit, but the, the uh, 25 years into this work, we discovered something uh, that uh, we call the interpreter, something in the left hemisphere that, is this thing that keeps trying to make sense out of the behaviors we carry out, the emotions we feel. It builds a story as to why we're experiencing those. And that's a, that's a big part of the split brain story. And so to the extent that uh, you are aware intellectually that, gee, yeah, there is this thing in our left hemisphere that's constantly trying to interpret why we bought that product or why we feel this way or why our hand went over to the door or, why we got up at a party and just decided to leave or what and we and then we ask well, why do we do that and then we make a story to incorporate it into who we are that's very powerful very strong and if you get really good at being able to abstract out that about how you act you could sit and say to yourself well 
I'm really feeling strong in this way, and I bet it has to do with some emotion I'm feeling. I don't have immediate access to it now, so I'm not going to do this because <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't get it, and I'm just going to go neutral here. Uh, you know, that's really thought about, thought about, thought kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes we're capable of that, but most of the time we just go with the with the first reaction to the feeling we're feeling and making an interpretation on that and acting accordingly. So if you get what I mean, there, there's, there, understanding this can ultimately help modulate how we respond, but it's not, uh, it, that really takes discipline. Right. And, and otherwise we're just all living our lives and trying to make sense out of our behavior and our feelings. And now a word from our sponsor. We've got a lot of really smart listeners out there And whether you're starting your own business and you're tired of using all these apps all over the place, or you're in an enterprise and you're just sick of SharePoint, we've got the solution for you. This week's episode is brought to you by Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work, share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. It's easy to use, and it's easy to configure, even for the most non-technical of users. Igloo is built using responsive design, which means that everything you can do at your desk, you can now do on the go on your phone. Whether you're a large enterprise stuck using SharePoint or a fast-growing business overwhelmed by apps, create an intranet that matches your brand's look and feel, simplifies how you work, and is accessible on your phone. Listen up to try Igloo for free Sign up at igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. That's igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. Thank you, Igloo, for being a supporter of Smart People Podcast. Sure, sure. Well, there was another aspect I wanted to touch on that I found so fascinating, which was called queuing. Could you explain to the audience what queuing is? Yeah. This was, uh, as we tested, started testing the patients, we saw ways one hemisphere was trying to direct uh, the other hemisphere, even though it had no uh, direct neural communication because the surgeon had had cut them off. So so imagine this. Imagine you're tethered to somebody. Uh, So you you are standing there and your friend comes up and behind you and you we're going to now tape your arms together and your legs together and we say okay now you've got to act as though you're one and for the first bit of time you're going to be very awkward and stumble and well this is crazy how can we do this and within a remarkably short period of time you will start to cue each other you would say wait a minute Uh, no if i'm going here you got to go with me so just let this go, or, or you, you exchange information. Well, you lead this time, or <laughs> you lead this time, and and you could survive and function. Well, now imagine all that within the body. <clears throat> imagine all that <clears throat> within the same body, <clears throat> and you can then uh, see, if you're very clever, how the two sides of the brain can set one up for the other to take advantage uh, of the situation. And this comes out in very simple tests, like reaching for a piece of food in one part of the visual field for another. Uh, how, do, how, do the, how does the visual information, one side of the brain, integrate with motor information from the other? 
when the brain is cut, well, maybe it cues it through the various tricks and feedback mechanisms. And the answer is to it, yes, that goes on. And then you say, well, maybe this is a big part of the brain. Maybe all these separated modules that I'm talking about are cueing each other at a low level, and that's how their information gets exchanged. So there's a whole little little theory about it. What To show the reader, and this is a, kind of a unique part of the book, which uh, I'm very proud of, uh, I have videos uh, distributed through the 12 or 15 of them, I think, distributed through the years of patients doing these various tasks where well, I can sit here and describe it till I'm blue in the face, but the reader gets to just click on this video and see it and uh, see it for themselves. And it really brings a deeper understanding to what we're uh, talking about here. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of this stuff is one of those things where it's tough to grasp just by reading, but one of the things, and I can't remember if this was in the queuing section. I'm a little vague on the details because it was, I think towards the beginning, but tell me if this rings a bell where you would ask them a question that like maybe it was naming something or naming a color and they would get it wrong initially. So as the words started coming out, right. the part of the brain that could hear the word knew it was wrong and corrected it. Was that part of cueing? Yeah. Yeah. That's another, uh, it, can, it goes on in many, many levels. Uh, I was giving the simple uh, visual motor one, but yeah, now let's say we have a, a patient who uh, only speaks out of the left side and we're flashing pictures of just simple little light, red and green lights to either the right hemisphere or the left hemisphere. And we're just asking the patient to name them. Okay. What'd you see? Red, green, green, red, red, green. Okay. How did that actually work? Because if the light went into what we call the right visual field, that only goes to the left hemisphere. And so for the patient to name those accurately, it was easy because it went to the half brain that has the speech. Now, what happens when the red and green lights go to the left visual field, which goes to the disconnected, quiet right hemisphere? It doesn't talk, right? And as the patient got into the test, what would happen was the uh, left hemisphere would take a guess at what the color could have been in the part of the visual field he didn't see. And the right hemisphere would hear the guess, and if the guess was right, nothing happened. If the guess was wrong, the right hemisphere was able to produce a little head shake. <laughs> <laughs> and the left brain said, whoa, wait. And this is after, this is after they learned to do all this stuff, right, cooperate. And the left hemisphere notices the head shake, and then changes the the guess, <laughs> changes the answer basically. So bingo! All of a sudden, they start. Looks like they're naming to both sides of the uh, visual midline. It makes it look like they're not split. It makes it look, all kinds of things. And then you you get on top of it and you realize, oh well, they're actually cheating here. And here's how they're cheating: they're doing this cross cueing thing and so forth. And it's it's about as cool as it gets when you're actually doing it and figuring it all out. Yeah. That was one of the reasons I loved it is because it's like, even when you do something so unnatural, like cut this brain, that's a pear, cut it in half. It will still use, and there's a million other examples in the book through, you know, throughout, but it'll still use any capacity it can to get to the right conclusion, solve the problem. And I feel like it's, just this almost evolutionary backup, you know, no matter what happens, even if your brain gets cut in half, 
will try and figure out a way to to get you to the place you need to. I found that amazing. You know, the the brain's built to for us all to make decisions to achieve goals. And uh, the in the situations in, in real life, natural life, and in the laboratory, the, the subject knows they got well, here's the goal the guy wants me to do. I'm going to use everything in my power to make that goal happen. And then it finds out it has deficits and really can't do it directly. And it's, well, how can I get that goal done anyway? Mm-hmm. And it use all these other alternative methods. And, and then you, your job is to figure them out and see if it teaches anything about how the brain works. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know that we're running out of time here. I had uh, a couple of questions that we didn't get a chance to get into that I just want to ask really quick. And if you have a short answer, great. And if not, I know you got to got to run. But um, what do you think is next in the field of neuroscience? What are you excited about? There's so much. Uh, first of all, there, there's just the the kind of data and accuracy of the data that for which we will for which we will use to figure out how the brain ultimately works and produces our our mental and conscious lives is getting better and better and better and better and more exact and more exact and more exact. But uh, the picture of something, the sort of the, the the roadmap of all the parts of something is one one sort of achievement. The next one is to figure out how we think about how all those parts interact. What kinds of thinking should we uh, bring to that question? And from my perspective, uh, I'm very excited about uh, bringing in control and dynamic systems thinking. So I think in the future we should be thinking about marrying the disciplines of uh, uh, basically engineering and neuroscience. To, if we want to figure out how all of the intricate parts interact to produce function. And that will require uh, some new training programs where both those skills are taught the students of tomorrow. Uh, not things that are sort of haphazardly picked up as they go along because they'll fi- figure out they'll, they may need these new tools. So, mm-hmm. so I think I think another way of saying that is in 20 years, the kind of answer you will be getting when you interview somebody uh, on brains and behavior will look different than the kinds of answers you get today. Wow. I look forward to that because hopefully 20 years from now, I'll still be doing that. Well, Mike, I have really enjoyed this. The book Tales from Both Sides of the Brain is fantastic. It's it's detailed without being too dense. It's for the common man as well as for somebody just so interested in this. Um, is there anywhere else that you kind of put the things you're learning into the world, anywhere else you would like our, our interested listeners to visit? Well, you know, a part of the book, when I started the book, it was just going to be a straight science story without bringing in the personal lives of characters, the institutional differences, the the uh, and then the fun you have. I, I wanted to kind of, as I got into it, I realized, you know, this has been a life of fun. It's great. I mean, here I am, uh, 75-year-old, and I can't wait to go to work every morning. That That, that is... Uh, that means you're you're doing something you love to do, but it's been fun. We have a lot of fun. We do other things. We're not isolated. We're, scientists aren't these isolated weirdos living in the ivory tower, uh, you know. And we do lots of stuff. And I try to tell some of the other stories that, uh, that has made it fun. And and so just so the the young student, you know, coming along, I think they've got to learn that uh, 
science is actually one of the cool ways to spend your life. That's true. And and this book, you do tell some great stories. So again, I recommend it to everyone. Mike, thank you again so much for your generous time. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to see what else you, you figure out about the brain. And if you want to put it in book form, we'd all appreciate it. <laughs> hey, thank you very much. All right. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. All righty. Bye-bye. Hey there. Welcome back to Smart People Podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Mike Gazziniga. Don't forget, you can pick up his book, Tales from Both Sides of the Brain, A Life in Neuroscience, on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you do decide to pick it up at Amazon, please head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon or click on the Amazon banner at the top of the page at smartpeoplepodcast.com. It'll take you over to Amazon. You make your purchases just as you normally would, but we get a nice little kickback from Amazon at no extra cost to you. If you want to get in contact with the show, Chris and I are all ears, so shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. One of the easiest ways to support the show is by heading over to iTunes and Stitcher and leaving us a review over there. As Chris mentioned in the intro of the show, we really do read every single one of those reviews out there. So thank you very much if you've taken the time out of your day to leave a review. We've got some awesome stuff planned in the future. So stick around, stay tuned, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>